Originals by Adam Grant, Chapter 4, entitled Fools Rush In, Timing, Strategic Procrastination, and the First Mover, Disadvantage. There's a funny quote by Mark Twain who says, Never put off till tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. So he starts this chapter out talking about Martin Luther King Jr., who was writing his speech, his famous I Have a Dream speech for the March on Washington in 1963. And just before the speech, he was working all night to write it, rewrite it, talking to his advisors, and so on. Um, so he's going to explore why King was procrastinating to write his speech and why it wasn't done earlier. Parents and teachers are constantly, constantly asking their children to begin their assignments earlier instead of waiting until the last minute. In the self-help world, an entire industry of resources is devoted to fighting procrastination. But he says, but what if the very act of procrastinating was the reason that King gave the best speech of his life? Hmm. When we have a meaningful task, we're advised to get it done well ahead of schedule. When we have an original idea to invent a product or start a company, we're encouraged to be the first mover. There are, of course, advantages. We can be sure to finish what we start and beat competitors. But surprisingly, the author has studied originals and has learned that the advantage of acting quickly and being first are often outweighed by the disadvantages. In a metaphor, he says, it's true that the early bird gets the worm, but we can't forget that the early worm gets caught. So this chapter considers the question of when to take original action. When you're preparing to row your boat against the stream, upstream, you have choices about whether to start at the crack of dawn, wait until midday, or until evening. The goal here is to overturn common assumptions about timing by examining the unexpected benefits of delaying when we start and finish a task, as well as when we unleash our ideas into the world. He's going to discuss why procrastination can be as good or as, sorry, he's going to discuss why procrastination can be not only good, but how it can also um, be a vice, how first movers, entrepreneurs, frequently go uphill, and why older innovative innovators sometimes outdo younger ones, and why the leaders who drive change effectively are those who wait patiently for the right moment. He says, although it can be risky to delay, you'll see that waiting can also reduce risk by preventing you from putting all your eggs in one basket. You don't have to be the first to be an original, and the most successful originals don't always arrive on schedule. They are fashionably late to the party. So he goes on to discuss Leonardo da Vinci, 
in one example, but first he tells how he was approached by a um, doctoral student, creative, who put forth a theory that procrastination might be conductive to originality. When you procrastinate, you're intentionally delaying work that needs to be done. You might be thinking about the task, but when you postpone making real progress on it or finishing it to do something less productive, he proposed that when you put off a task, you buy yourself time to engage in thinking rather than getting fixed on one particular idea. As a result, you consider a wider range of original concepts and ultimately choose a more novel direction. So they did a test and they asked college students to write proposals for a business on campus. Um, when the task started immediately, they tended to propose uh, conventional ideas. This was for a an convenience store that was empty now. So they proposed conventional ideas like another convenience store. When she randomly assigned some of the participants to procrastinate by putting off the task and play computer games like Minesweeper and Solitaire, they produced more novel business ideas like a tutoring center and a storage facility. Independent raters evaluated the final proposals without knowing who procrastinated and who started immediately. The proposals from the procrastinators were 28% more creative. So they're hypothesizing that when they started immediately and then took a break before returning to it, they had already made too much progress to start over. It was only when they began thinking about the task and then deliberately procrastinated that they considered more remote possibilities and generated more creative ideas. Delaying progress enabled them to spend more time considering different ways to accomplish it rather than quote, seizing and freezing on one particular strategy. So he says, procrastination may be the enemy of productivity, but it can be a resource for creativity. So he says, long before modern obsession with efficiency and the industrial revolution and the Protestant work ethic, civilizations recognize the benefits of procrastination. He even says in ancient Egypt, there were two different verbs, verbs for procrastination. One was about laziness and the other meant waiting for the right time. It's not a coincidence that some of the most original thinkers and inventors in history have been procrastinators. Prime example is Leonardo da Vinci whose original accomplishments spanned painting, sculptures, and all, so many things. Scholars estimated that da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa on and off for a few years starting in 1503, left it unfinished, and didn't complete it until close to his death in 1519. His critics believed he was wasting his time, but one historian explains that he was using the time to work out new ideas, to work on other sort of things, like his um, pottery, for example. He was able to paint better by the practice of his pottery. So he noted that genius sometimes 
Geniuses sometimes accomplish most when they work the least, for they are thinking out inventions and forming in their minds the perfect idea. Science stars, quote, used procrastination as a form of incubation to put off premature choice of a scientific problem. One explained, often when I'm procrastinating, I really have something on the back burner of my mind, and I need the time to work it through. It needs time to mature. He gives another example with Abraham Lincoln's famous speech. It was just 272 words, probably took maybe five minutes for the speech, but he was working on it and reworking on it and reworking on it for two weeks. And even at the last minute, he was again reworking on it and reworking on it. He didn't write the closing paragraph until the night before the speech. And it was the morning of the speech that he finalized it. He waited because he wanted to develop the most compelling theme. With King and his speech, he knew that he would give it a long time in advance, but he waited until just the night before the speech to go back and rework it. The Bluma Zygarnik demonstrated that people have a better memory for incomplete rather than complete tasks. Once a task is finished, we stop thinking about it, but when it is interrupted and left undone, it stays active in our minds. Therefore, because it stays active, it can work and incubate and develop. So what happened in the 1963 March on Washington when Martin Luther King Jr. was giving his speech? He had a planned out speech and he started delivering it. And then somewhere in the middle, someone from behind started shouting, Tell him about the dream, Martin! But he kept continuing with his script. And then, at one point, in front of a crowd of 250,000 and millions on TV, King improvised. He pushed his notes aside and launched into his inspiring vision of the future. Someone says, in front of all those people, cameras and microphones, Martin winged it. He just improvised. And that's when he went into his famous, I have a dream. So he says, along with providing time to generate novel ideas, procrastination has another benefit. It keeps us open to improvisation. When we plan well in advance, we often stick to the structure we've created, closing the door to creative possibilities that might spring into our fields of vision. In a study about uh, companies, they found that profitable stores were actually run by leaders who rated themselves at least efficient and prompt. And companies with the highest financial returns were ones whose CEOs rated themselves the lowest on efficiency and promptness. They admitted that they often wasted time before settling down to work on something. So this actually opened leaders up to being more strategically flexible. CEOs who tended to delay work were more flexible and versatile. Therefore, they were able to change their strategies and capitalize on new opportunities and defend against threats. Great originals are great procrastinators, but 
They don't skip planning altogether. They procrastinate strategically, making gradual progress by testing and refining different possibilities. Going back to Martin Luther King, although the most memorable lines we have about his speech were improvised, King had rehearsed variations of them in earlier speeches. He had been speaking already for 20 years and had given by that time about 350 speeches. And mostly it was the same speech, but he would work on different rehearsals, different tones. They say King did not so much write his speeches as assemble them and rearrange them and adopt material, adapting material, changing material that he had used many times before. Now we move on to a new section in the chapter called Pioneers and Settlers. In America in the old days there was two groups of people who moved west, the pioneers and the settlers. The pioneers were the first to go. They were really just the ones moving into the Wild West and confronting the Native Americans. After some time, when a little bit of facilities were built up, you know, a station here, a path there, then the settlers moved in and cultivated the land and stayed there. So he's using the analogy of these two to compare two different types of ways to either have an original idea or go into business. So Bill Gross, after being involved in starting over 100 companies, he ran an analysis to figure out what drove success versus failure. He says the most important factor was not the uniqueness of the idea, the capabilities and execution of the team, the quality of the business model, or the availability of funding. The number one thing was timing. Timing accounted for 42% of the difference between success and failure. Research shows that in American culture, people believe strongly in a first-mover advantage. The ones who act first win. We want to be leaders, not followers. If you're first out of the gate with a new product, service, or technology, you can move up the learning curve earlier get prime space, monopolize, and win over your competitors. That's the common understanding in America. However, in a classic study, two researchers compared the success of companies that were either pioneers or settlers. The pioneers were first movers, the initial company to develop or sell a product. The settlers were slower to launch, waiting until the pioneers had created a market before entering it. They analyzed dozens and dozens of different companies and found a staggering, a huge difference in failure rates. 47% of pioneers failed compared to just 8% of the settlers who failed. Pioneers were about six times more likely to fail than settlers. But when the pioneers did survive, they only captured an average of 10% of the market compared with 28% for settlers. So surprisingly, the downsides of being the first mover are frequently bigger than the advantages. So if you're someone who's tempted to rush into a new area, a new domain, the new stuff, this knowledge should stop you cold and leave you thinking carefully about the ideal timing.
But Bolton finds something frightening. Even when people learn this evidence, they still don't believe it. It's easier to think of pioneers that succeeded. The failed ones are long forgotten, so we assume they're rare. The best way to shatter the myth of first mover advantage is to ask people to generate reasons for first mover disadvantage. In your experience, what are the four biggest drawbacks or disadvantages of being a pioneer, a first mover? He goes on to give many examples. For example, one about uh, game consoles who launched in 1972. They were the first, but a settler named Nintendo wiped them out. There was someone who dreamed up getting, uh, ordering videos online and have them delivered. And this was before the dot-com bubble burst. This means 1990s. However, it completely crashed. One study of over 3,000 startups indicates that roughly three out of every four fail because of premature scaling, making investments that the market is not yet ready to support. That means one out of three, sorry, three out of four, still a lot, fail because of premature scaling. They try to go too big, too fast, too soon. With the video ordering startup, he went too fast. If he went slowly, he might have noticed that technology wasn't available for everything that he wanted to do yet. Someone said in an, in an interview, when ideas get really complicated, and when the world gets complicated, it's foolish to think the person who's first can work it all out. Most good things take a long time to figure out. So in this chapter, he's pointing out the advantages and more disadvantages of being a first mover. So a second reason to be a settler rather than a pioneer, to be a second mover, a late mover, he says, risk seekers are drawn to be first. They're prone to making impulsive decisions. Meanwhile, risk averse entrepreneurs watch from the sidelines, waiting for the right opportunity. When entrepreneurs rush to follow the crowd into hyped markets, that means, wow, that's the next great thing, their startups are less likely to survive and grow. When entrepreneurs wait for the market to cool down, they have higher odds of success. Higher odds. It's not always the case, but higher odds. Third, settlers can improve upon competitors' technology to make products better. So settlers can watch and learn from the heirs. Moving first is a tactic, not a goal. Being the first mover does not do you any good if someone else comes along and outdoes you. Number four, whereas pioneers tend to get stuck in their early offerings, settlers can observe market changes and shift according to consumer tastes. And to cap it off, it's all about the timing. 
He gives an example in the 1840s when one Hungarian physician discovered that having medical students wash their hands dramatically reduced death rates during childbirth. He was scorned by his colleagues and ended up in an asylum. It would be two decades, 20 years before his ideas gained scientific legitimacy by Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch. Max Planck observed, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die. <laughs> it doesn't mean to imply that it's never, never wise to be first. Someone has to be first. First mover advantages tend to prevail when patented technology is involved, or when there is a strong network effect, and so on. But when the market is uncertain, unknown, or underdeveloped, being a pioneer has pronounced disadvantages. The key lesson here is that if you have an original idea, it's a mistake to rush in with the sole purpose of beating your competitors. Now we're going to broaden up the line in the last section of this chapter. He says, what happens when we broaden the lens, when we open up beyond timetables and product life cycles, but look at the course of a person's lifetime? Is there a risk of waiting too long to act in your lifetime? One person once said, people under 35 are people who make change happen. People over 45 basically die in terms of new ideas. Even Albert Einstein said, a person who has not made his great contribution to science before the age of 30 will never do so. So we're going to a little bit examine this and actually defeat it. However, one company, uh, when, when a study was done with companies that when they run suggestion boxes that older employees tend to submit more ideas and higher quality ideas than younger colleagues. And the most valuable suggestion comes from employees older than 55. So he wants to point out that there are two completely different styles of innovation, of new things. There is one called conceptual and one is called experimental. Conceptual innovators conceptual innovators formulate a big idea and set out to execute it. Experimental innovatives solve problems through trial and error, learning and evolving as they go along. In other words, conceptual innovators are sprinters, like in a race. They run short distances very fast. And experimental innovators are marathoners over the long run. He gives some examples of uh, famous poets, for example. Conceptual innovators authored their best works at 28, compared with age 39 for experimental innovators. Conceptual innovation can be done quickly because it does not require years of methodical investigation, looking at it again and experimenting and so on. Conceptual innovators normally make their most important contributions not long after their first exposure to it. For this reason, conceptual innovators tend 
to become less original once they're entrenched or once they're stuck in conventional ways of approaching problems. Because they get fixed in a way of thought from their young age. And once they yeah, discover a certain way of thought, it's hard to get out of that in an older age. Whereas someone will discover, someone who's used to experimenting has a different way of going about it. Experimental innovation can require years or decades to accumulate the knowledge and skill. But it becomes a more sustainable source of originality. Conceptual innovators tend to generate original ideas early, but risk copying themselves. So they have the same idea, one idea early in life, and throughout their life they keep hanging on that same idea and cannot expand to other things. The experimental approach takes longer, but proves more renewable. Instead of reproducing our past ideas, experiments enable us to continue discovering new ones. To sustain our originality as we age and accumulate expertise, our best course of action is to go with the experimental approach. We can make fewer plans in advance for what we want to create and start testing out different kinds of ideas and solutions. Eventually, if we're patient, we stumble onto something that's novel and useful. Says the more experiments you run, the less constrained you become by your ideas from the past. Sprinting is okay for a young genius, but becoming an old master requires the patience of experimentation to run a marathon. He was pointing out earlier in this chapter that um, conceptual people basically who are young geniuses are conceptualist and all of their great works they come up with young in life and and then they're done older in life they usually don't have any more great ideas but an experimentalist they might not have any good ideas when they're young in life but they keep working adapting experimenting and then when they're older in life they come out with their innovative and amazing things both are paths to creativity. But for those of us who aren't struck by a bolt of insight, who aren't just, wow, amazing idea and it works, slow and steady experimentation can light the way to a longer stretch of originality. Those who are relentlessly curious, constantly tinkering with things, experimenting, the dedicated tortoises, the turtles, he references the, the famous race between the turtle and the rabbit. Just keep going on, and we are undaunted by the blur of the rabbits. This concludes chapter 4, entitled Fools Rush In. Tune in next time for chapter 5, about creating and maintaining coalitions.